Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory podcast, where we discuss all aspects of medical device and pharmaceutical regulatory and clinical strategy from bench to bedside. We're kicking off our second season of Chasing Compliance with a two-part episode on one of our most popular and well-liked submissions, abbreviated new drug applications or ANDAs. It's one of my favorite topics actually, because it's so nuanced. What is straightforward to one person is a complete mystery, you know, and confounding to another. The one difficulty that I see sometimes is that sometimes, I think sometimes that we make it harder than it really needs to be. Our guest today, Sandra Kirkus, walks us through ANDA basics, how they differ from new drug applications or NDAs, the ANDA approval process, ANDA timing, and common challenges associated with ANDA submissions. We devote a large portion of this episode to tips and tricks for successful agency communication surrounding ANDAs. A bit more about Sandra. Sandra started her career as a chemist in the FDA, transitioning soon thereafter into the regulatory space. Throughout her 20-year career in the industry, Sandra has supported a wide variety of regulatory affairs-related activities and regulatory submissions, but her passion and focus has been centered on chemistry manufacturing and controls, or CMC-related submissions and submission strategy, including ANDAs. Let's welcome Sandra. Hi, Sandra. Welcome to Chasing Compliance. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you about ANDAs today. This is a pretty important uh, regulatory mechanism nowadays because mm-hmm. there's a lot of drugs that are either generics or being derived from other drugs um, that need to go through this regulatory process. But before we get too much into the details, can you, from a high level, kind of describe what an ANDA is and who's filing for this type of application? I'd love to. So an ANDA is, or as you said, ANDA, um, is uh, short for abbreviated new drug application. And these are applications that are covered under 505J of the FDNC or the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. And this application is specifically for generic drugs. So drugs that for all intents and purposes are an exact copy of a previously approved drug. And they're also, in, in terms of it being an exact copy, the most important one of the most important pieces of that is that they're bioequivalent. So they work exactly the same. We talked about generics with your colleagues, Brandy and Rebecca, in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. What strikes me as incredible is that manufacturers of generics need to get so close or exactly the same as the drug that they're making a generic of, which, again, is, is wild to me from like a copyright standpoint because it's right. you know, I can, can't think of another use case. So it, during the ANDA process, is this where they'll examine the closeness between the two compounds or drugs themselves, or is this done subsequently to that? Oh, that's an awesome question. Uh, just to back up a little bit. Yeah. So the, you know, what you mentioned about the, the actual drug itself. So the, uh, the actual, the active ingredient, right? So that, that will be the same. And what a lot of, a lot of times um, generic uh, drug companies will do is actually purchase that drug or that, you know, that active ingredient from another manufacturer. And then what they'll do in the, uh, in their application in the ANDA that they're sending, you know, sending to the agency, uh, just reference that, uh, the, 
supplier's application in the ANDA. And so that's, how, uh, that's usually referred to as a DMF or a drug master file. So that, that does need to, to be the same. Um, where the other part of your question is, though, in terms of the, the, um, the you know, what I was referring to in, in terms of the bioequivalence is what's really interesting about this is that uh, for, for that innovator, uh, that innovator company, the one who actually has the reference listed uh, drug out on the market, so the, the branded, the branded drug, they have a full gamut of non-clinical and clinical studies that they have to do um, in over, you know, several years. But for the generic, uh, for the generic uh, company, so they have the same active moiety, same that, that they're, you know, 99% of the time purchasing from a supplier. And then they actually, uh, the only thing they really need to do in their application or, uh, is to show um, bioequivalence to the reference. And, and so they're basically showing this, uh, the same safety and effectiveness. And that, so they're basically saying, you know, I'm, you know, uh, uh, Exact, I'm performing exactly the same way in the human body. And that, that's really what the extent of the, the in vivo and in vitro studies that they have to do. Those generic manufacturers have it so easy, <laughs> right? They, they, don't, they don't have to collect, they a, don't have to do drug discovery and, and test yeah. a thousand candidates before they find the correct one. Yeah. They don't have to do preclinical and phase one through three slash four trials, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And then they get this accelerated pathway. Speaking of that, without giving too much away, what is the difference between an NDA or new drug application and an ANDA? So with the new drug application, um, that usually, uh, so the timeframe for review of that is, uh, it's usually about the same, about 10 months. Um, but like you had alluded to, um, and I kind of referenced in my previous answer, the lead up to that is significantly different. So you're going to have very similar module three sections in terms of, you know, the, the, um, uh, the manufacturing and the analytics uh, but what's really different is that module four and module five, which, you know, for the innovator is, you know, thousands and thousands of, of, you know, uh, of pages and efforts, you know, in terms of those studies. But for the ANDA uh, applicant holder is just for, you know, the, the specific um, study that they need to, do, to show uh, the bioequivalence for. It's also worth noting, you know, just in terms of the the other thing that we have to think about with the innovator versus the ANDA holder is that the for the innovator, there's uh, they they get a significant amount of exclusivity uh, from the agency, and that basically says, okay, because you've put all of these millions of dollars and efforts into you know the work for this new drug, you have a period of time where only you can, you know, uh, are allowed to, you know, uh, market this, this drug. And then it's after that period of time that the ANDA applicant holders can start um, putting in their applications. Say two drug manufacturers make the exact same therapeutic compound at the exact same time, push it through, one finishes before the other, mm -hmm. it's approved. Is the other just out of luck? Could they still file a NDA? Could they file an ANDA? 
even if the drug's under patent. I, what comes immediately to mind, and I please know letters or mail, and I know they're different, is the <laughs> Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines. The From a high level, the mechan- mechanism of action is very similar. Right. Um, and so I'm just curious, that popped into my mind. Again, I know they're different drugs, and because they're different active, essentially active mechanisms of action and active ingredients, quote unquote, they both need to go through the same pathway um, and both need to go for full approval, but just this hypothetical. Right. No, that that's a really that's a really interesting question too. So in in that case, yeah, you you do actually have two NDAs. Um uh I I would I have to I'll have to look up the logistics for that, but I mean essentially they've you they've done all of their own um safety and effectiveness studies. So they haven't referenced, you know, another um, you know, they they looked at their application, you know, it's a standalone. You're not referring to another application. So they're not saying they're the same as anything. So they did all of the work or either, you know, purchase the asset or whatever the case may be. But in, uh, in a very, uh, essentially you, you have two NDAs or BLAs in the case for the vaccine. I am. I imagine this happens not frequently, but not, not frequent, like right. completely rarely, just because there, there, there are scientific discoveries, which break down a wall and then drug companies will see the therapeutic. <laughs> right. Hey, right. There you go. <laughs> That's great. Well, I mean, you know, so it's like a technology comes out of some academic institution, say CRISPR, right? Um, and they're like, oh, oh man, yeah. CRISPR would be great for cystic fibrosis. We could just change this one SNP which sorry, is a single nucleotide polymorphism and mm-hmm. cure the disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could absolutely see two drug manufacturers going after it. And then if one's, I'm thinking if one's, you know, say a year behind in clinical right. trials, which is not significant, maybe they could piggyback on the coattails of, a, of another one. Right. Well, what's interesting about that is I remember at some prior companies where we would actually, you know, we, we would have meetings where we discussed the competitors and what we knew in terms of the, where, they were in their development, you know, if, you know, if we were at phase two and they were, you know, starting phase three, because like you said, you know, I mean, you, it, it doesn't take away necessarily the, the loveliness and, you know, amazing efforts that it takes to get that approval. Right. But being the first on the market does make a difference, you know, <laughs> you know, and like you said, you know, there is that sort of, you know, companies are all kind of dividing up that piece of the pie. Right. I think the only other thing, you know, just referring to the exclusivity piece, um, it may be worth mentioning that with ANDAs, there's um, there's four different patent certifications, um, and when there for a paragraph two, I believe, uh, for a paragraph two application, uh, so if you're the first applicant to, um, uh, to send in an ANDA for a specific RLA. So if you're the first potential generic drug, you do get a small exclusivity for that. It, it, it kind of cha- changes the game in terms of the generics because it, a lot of times with generic companies, because, you know, you, you, you don't have all of the the monies in uh, in terms of you know the effort for the non clinical and non clinical studies, but you also have you know because you're all you know you're you're taking a piece of an already divisible piece of pie, <laughs> so to speak. You know, it's a, a lot of times a lot it's about volume. 
So, but if you're the first ANDA applicant holder in a, you know, an approval for a particular reference drug, then that, you know, that exclusivity, which I think is about six months, um, can make a huge difference too. Can you touch a little bit on what a petitioned ANDA is? Ah, yes. So a petitioned ANDA is an application where there is one significant piece of the um, of that drug that the applicant is proposing that is different from the reference. I think one of the easiest um, scenarios I can th- I can think of is, for instance, um, uh, radiology drugs. So drugs that you know are used you know for the purposes of like a you know a, a radioisotope for like an MRI machine or something like that. You can actually uh, submit a petition to the FDA that says, we know uh, and we have determined that the concentration of this radioisotope that we need, it actually can be lower than what the reference listed drug is in the orange book. This is our data to support this. Please, please consider that, you know, please take this under consideration. And the agency will review it if they agree They'll provide that approval, and then anybody who wants to do an ANDA with that specific change can reference that petition. What's interesting about this is that the per, uh, the person or company that submits the petition is not necessarily the person who actually needs uh, who uses it in the subsequent ANDA application because it's all public. Uh, uh, in the public domain. So once you send that petition, it's it's under it, it's it's under the public domain. Everybody sees it. So other people could or other companies could actually use that approved petition in their subsequent ADA. So generally, would you say that a petitioned one could petition for an ANDA with a a slightly different compound route dosage if it's reasonably deemed to be safer? Not safer, but it can, uh, is equivalent. Uh, so for in this scenario that I, I mentioned, you know, the dose of the, the strength of the, the radioisotope, you know, they can use, they could use a, uh, a lower concentration and have the same re- and have the same result when they were using it. So it doesn't um, defy the um, uh, the bioequivalence aspect of it, you know, like the the kind of Goldilocks or you know exactly you know uh, the kind of nice in the middle, not not better, not worse sort of thing. But it's um, it, it does say, okay, well, I can make this slight change and still be equivalent to essentially equivalent to the reference. And it's equally as performant. That, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Say we are going in with the same exact RLD. It's deemed to be safe and effective. The route's the same. The active ingredients are exactly the same. Conditions of use are the same. Mm-hmm. Dosage is the same. Strength, labeling, air bioequivalent. We've got all that squared away. We've submitted. What does the approval process look like briefly? So when you uh, so when you submit an application, uh, the first thing that the agency will do is check to make sure all of the pieces are there. So in the EU, it's called a validation check. I've heard a lot of people refer to it similarly in 
in this in recent years uh, when the FDA does it, but it's it's essentially you know a, a checkbox where okay you know I'm checking to make sure this is a complete application. You know they they have all of the you know they have all the methods, method validations, batch records, you know so on and so forth. They'll also do sometimes a, a little bit of not necessarily a deep dive, but I've seen in recent um, in recent years where you can tell that there was a substantive review of you know the information, not necessarily uh, from a technical perspective, but a lot of times companies will use a contract manufacturer, and if you know there's a page uh, that's in another language that doesn't have a one for one translation, they'll call that out. So you know, it's definitely a detailed review of your application to make sure all of those components are there so that when, when it gets to the review divisions, you know, they can do their job. So the uh, so the, that's the, the first piece. Um, and if the if your application has a few things missing, you know, so uh, the, the bar is, you know, less uh, 10 or less. So as long as you have that 10 or less, then the, the agency will come back and say, OK, you know, you're please, you know, provide an amendment and, you know, address these deficiencies. And once that's done, then it goes into into review at the different divisions. And that all total, your GDUFA or goal date is 10 months from you know, the acceptance of your application. And about halfway through your the review, so at about the five-month point, uh, you'll get a list of questions, you know, uh, a deficiency review letter. But kind of stepping back a little bit, there is a lot of communication even once it starts, even, you know, even before that half-month point. You know, generally, I'd say, you know, there's at least two or three respondents between uh, regulatory and, you know, at the company and, you know, the, uh, and your, your FDA PM where your where the review division will have, you know, a couple of one-off questions that they'll come in and ask for. And then after that, that's when you'll get the deficiency review letter, you know, kind of formalizing those questions that they have remaining questions that they have with a goal date. And then it's up to the company to respond to those questions you know, uh, by by the uh, by the due date, uh, and then hopefully, if you're uh, at the end of that, you know the the um, the goal is you know an you know eventual approval of your application. Okay, so that that brings me to my next topic, and I'd like now to kind of go from necessarily high level and more into the nitty gritty, especially for those that are preparing for submitting and are either on the first step or at a part or have done several and would just like some, some new tips. Can you give us some tips on agency communication? Uh, yes, it, it's one of my favorite topics actually, because it's so nuanced. What is straightforward to one person is a complete mystery, you know, and confounding to another, you know, and it, it's, because of the different types of communications, you know, like you, like you had referred to, you know, there's, you know, the communication with the FDA PM, there's a communication with the division, you know, addressing the more technical questions. And, you know, in more recent years with some of the, the introduction of GDUFA, we also have the potential to talk to the agency either before you submit an ANDA in you know, if it's a complex uh, generic or um, 
and you also have the opportunity to do so after. For instance, if you get a, a, con, a complete response letter in order to be able to address it, to clarify some of those uh, deficiencies that are still outstanding um, that, you know, you'll need to address before they, you know, before you go back and uh, before they'll, uh, they'll give you an approval. Um, the first thing that I would say is that, you know, when you do that, regardless of whether or not it's an email, a formalized letter, um, even if you're on the phone, just, I, I really recommend just stopping and taking a minute, you know, because it's really, you know, what you hear initially and then what your kind of knee jerk reaction, you know, you wants to, you know, wants to be sometimes is not necessarily aligned, you know, so if it's an email, you know, stopping, re, you know, review, uh, reviewing it and then coming back to it a couple of minutes later and making sure that, you know, you still read it the same way, you know, it, it's a little bit harder when it's, it's real time, of course, but, you know, as somebody who's had to speak to, you know, different agencies, it's always nice to have that sort of, okay, this is what I think the question is. Stop. Let me compose my response internally before I provide that feedback. And that that's uh, I think it's served served me well. It's it's definitely uh, you know sometimes the agency just wants what they want you know and there's room for negotiation and sometimes there's there's not unfortunately. But you get a sense pretty quickly what those things that you do have a little bit of wiggle room on and which ones are pretty hard and fast that the agency is, no, oh, no, 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 no. We definitely want to see this sort of thing. So I'd say first and foremost, you know, uh, taking that minute to making it to make sure that you're really understanding the request. And then the second part of that being, you know, really hearing those cues, you know, whether or not it, again, if they're in the email, you know, like the, the way it's being phrased or, you know, if it's actually real-time communication, what, what you can actually negotiate and what you need to just leave alone, basically. Two key takeaways here are take a step back after you receive communication, either verbal or written, and make sure that you fully understand exactly what the message is, because sometimes you can subjectively process it incorrectly and think they're asking for X or saying Y and when it's really Z. And two, you recommend taking a look for cues because there will be subtle nuance to communication, which can suggest openness for negotiation. Can you give us a couple of examples of those nuanced communication pattern that would suggest that they're open to negotiation and vice versa. Can you give us an example of language that you would consider to be absolute position? Without, yeah, with, I, I'd say one of the things that um, the FDA will a lot of times do is uh, when they're, you know, for instance, like say if you're, you know, you're talking about your specifications, you know, and they say, you know, that they'd like to see you tighten a certain specification, you know, that based on, you know, your, you know, the, the, the available data and your process capability that, you know, and where your validation, you know, you can see that, you know, there, there's room to, to tighten, you know, this particular, uh, this particular spec to, to play and to please address, you know, to please address accordingly. So that's giving you an opportunity to say, okay, well, let's go back and look at the data, you know, and see, you know, uh, see where we can, 
you know, per, perhaps come in a bit or further give the agency, you know, a further understanding of, you know, why you came up with, with that specification. What's your justification? Is there additional information that maybe wasn't clear or needs to be spoken to in the, in the initial application? And on the other side of that, I would say, you know, if, if you give that response and say you, you come in a little bit, 20 units to 15 units, whatever, whatever the case may be, uh, and they come back and say, your, your specification is still not adequate. You know, this is what we're seeing. Update your spec, <laughs> you know, and, and basically, basically they're saying, OK, we're seeing, you know, if they say we're seeing that, you know, your none of your batches go over 10 update accordingly, then they're they're telling you, you need to update this to 10. How about on the flip side? What about communication from the applicant to the agency? Is there a way that you can structure your communication to advocate for negotiation or indicate without selling the farm that this is going to be, I, I know this is a requirement, but it's going to be extremely challenging, some type of, to to soften the relationship a bit or soften the standards? I think that's, yeah, that that's a great question. I there definitely is a, uh, there, there definitely is, you know, way there, there are ways to do that, you know, and it, I think that's, it doesn't mean you're going to be successful, but I think, you know, what you're really, you know, what, what you're alluding to in terms of, you know, let's put our best case forward, but do it in such a way that you're continue you're keeping the positive rapport with the agency. And that is, that can be extremely difficult, especially when, you know, yourself and or your technical team feel very strongly about something, you know, uh, as I, as I like to say, sometimes it's not for the faint of heart because it, it's, it's so, it, it's really, it can be really difficult to walk that line. Um, and, you know, and re reiterating, you know, the last thing you want to do is say, you know, we just, you know, just blatantly say, you know, we, we disagree, you know, in terms of something, uh, you know, a particular request and, you know, I, I've seen a lot of times where people want to just kind of, you know, th this is, this is incorrect or we disagree for all of these, you know, long, you know, laundry list of reasons. And really the approach you want to take is that you're acknowledging where the agency is coming from or what they're asking for. And this is your, ra this is your science-based rationale for why you think this may be an equivalent, you know, uh, it may not be exactly what's being requested, but this is uh, this is what I think can give you what you, you know, will will be equivalent to really getting you what you need. Um, you know, really having that alternative science based approach, you know, thought thought to it, and use it starting with that, and then supplementing it with softer language to really kind of to, to sell that basically, you know, to, to really sit, you know, about the acknowledgement, this is, you know, this is where we're, we're going with this. You know, we would like, you know, for the agency's consideration on this point or something like that. Um, I, I think that's, it, it's really important to kind of supplement, to start with really grounding yourself in that science-based alternative approach and then supplementing with, you know, with language that really supports that, you understand what the agency is asking for, but you also know, you know, you believe that this can be a good alternative. I can imagine that 
I have seen scientific conversations get pretty emotional. People yes. can be pretty steadfast in their in their points, but ultimately the FDA is the boss. While you may disagree, they also are founding their concerns on solid evidence-based science. I mean, if you right. can co collegially communicate, that's you're saying that's far more effective than just saying you're wrong and this is why. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's uh, as you mentioned, as uh, I, I've I've seen similar, very similar. Like it, it's uh, very heated, you know, uh, or exuberant, <laughs> exuberant discussions. You know, uh, from a technical standpoint, I, I think we've all seen it. You know, particularly in the field that we're in. Uh, but yeah, really maintaining, you know, maintaining that. Um, uh, that understanding that it, it's in the end, it's a request, right? You, you're asking them for, you know, for that consideration. And like you said, it, it's, it's, you know, ultimately, you know, ultimately their decision. And at some point you, sometimes you just have to let it go. Okay. So, and one caveat I'd like to, to add here before we, we move too much further, when we're talking about communication and negotiation, we're, we're talking about moving an ice cube or a deck chair on the Titanic, as opposed to softening regulations. The FDA regulations are really strict and they're not going to compromise safety or performance standards because you have a good conversation with them. This is really just being able to move minute details. And in the case of some drug development, going from 95% efficacy, uh, let's say going from 95% purity to 95.5 maybe require a tremendous amount of effort and redesign of all of the the bio, the biochemical and synthetic creation of the compound or infrastructure but there may be an infinitesimally small reduction in risk and this is you know, without being too hyperbolic, this is what we're talking about here is negotiating at the ends of the spectrum, never about the overall safety. Would you agree? Absolutely. What, what do you think, along with communication, what do you see as being what another big challenge people face and what are your tips for overcoming that? You know, this, I don't know if this exactly answers your question, but I will say that and everybody's trying, you know, just trying to, you know, get the application submitted or, you know, get that approval, you know, as soon as possible. Like, and we're, we're all doing that in our own discrete ways, you know, and under, you know, the, our, you know, sort of, you know, umbrella or remit, you know, of what we're responsible for. But I'd say that the one difficulty that I see sometimes is that sometimes, I think sometimes that we make it harder than it really needs to be. I think there are certain things that, you know, we, we can say through, you know, experience that, you know, we know the agency wants, you know, or that it maybe, you know, you can, you know, do an alternative, but is it really worth it? Even I can, I can think of uh, some scenarios in the, in my past where, you know, so you've re you reverse engineer formulation instead of just doing a one for one. Okay. I'm re re reverse engineering this formulation, you know, for the U S market, but I have this other, uh, I have this other breadth of experience in, an, you know, in an ex U S market, but 
But instead of, you know, going ahead and kind of considering this under a new program, you know, trying to kind of force fit, you know, the prior experience into, you know, the U.S. market. And that can be difficult sometimes. I'm not saying that it can't be done. It's just sometimes sometimes it's in the end, you know, the the you know, the the number of questions that you'll receive because you're not, you know, because you're trying to. Um, use all this experience that isn't exactly one for one, you know, it kind of compl- it complicates your, your application, you know, so really thinking about how, you know, that regulatory strategy, like how do you want to approach the agency? Like what's the information you want to use, you know, from your development, where do you want to draw the line? You know, and most importantly, what are the things that I absolutely need and that I probably shouldn't compromise? The questions, you know, they come fast and furious and, you know, they, you, you need to respond to them quickly. So make, make it easy on yourself, too, because they're hard enough as it is, you know. So you're saying it, it may be even if you've received approval and gone through the application process in an ex-U.S. or outside U.S. market, don't try to shoehorn that application. Start anew. Pretty much, yeah. I'm not saying that it has to be from from scratch per se, but really consider what are the things that you maybe can keep from that other application? What are the things that maybe, you know, maybe you should start from scratch on, or at least, you know, go back a few steps for. Sandra and I will leave the discussion here for this episode. Our discussion on ANDA continues in part two, where we'll delve into much greater detail on how to overcome common challenges associated with ANDA submissions and how to prepare a rock-solid ANDA. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. We're very excited to kick off Season 2, which is focused on tips and best practices for submission writing, regulatory strategy, and clinical development. If you have any other questions about anything discussed in today's episode, or any regulatory or clinical topic in general, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly by emailing us at info at globalrwc.com. That's info at globalrwc.com or submitting a request for information through our website at www.globalrwc.com. There you can find more information on our approach to solving a wide variety of regulatory and clinical challenges. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, leave a review, or tell your colleagues. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app you're listening on. Until next time, we wish you continued compliance.